Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Now, my guest today is an internationally acclaimed writer and an award-winning journalist. She writes for papers in the United Kingdom and South Africa, and apart from her fiction, she also writes regularly about crime, gender violence, politics and freedom of expression, and literature. She's written a number of children's books and several works of non-fiction on subjects ranging from climate change to rural development. Uh, But, of course, it is as a crime writer that we know her best. She was born in London to South African parents. She grew up in Namibia and South Africa. She's fantastically educated. She uh, went to the University of Cape Town. She had a Fulbright scholarship in 1999 and a master's in comparative literature from the Graduate School of the City University of New York. She lives in London. She's an honorary fellow of St. Hugh's College at Oxford. She has a PhD. She is the uh, President Emerita of Penn South Africa and she was on the board of Penn International. Margie Orford, welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here. We've seen a lot of each other recently because you just got married. I did, a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) Which interrupted my writing, I have to say. Uh, But can I just say that our producer, Nora, (laughs) did, I think, the only sensible thing that could possibly have been done was what you agreed to come on this show last Saturday, which was, in fact, the day of your wedding. And it was only Nora that stopped you. (laughs) I know, I know. Thank you, Nora. I did. Why did you think the interview? in the morning is books it's work and then the wedding and the man in the evening but um it was very right that I was stopped <laughs> <laughs> um Margie you've been on this show before but but I'd really like to refresh our, our listeners memory about really how we got to this point you, you were born here in London but of course mostly Namibia has been your home tell us more about that yes but I was born completely I was an accident, actually, to a gynaecologist father and a midwife mother. So it's, <laughs> You'd think they'd know better. <laughs> you would, you would. My parents moved to Namibia when I was little in the early 70s. And so I spent a great deal of my life in Namibia, in the bush. My father was a doctor there, but he also did a lot of research into lions. So he would regularly take us out of school to help him with his research in the lions and he'd write a letter to the nuns I was at a convent with my brother and sister and he'd write dear sister so-and-so I'm taking my children out of school in order to educate them yours faithfully Dr. H. Jail Orford <laughs> <laughs> and then I was yeah then I was at university in Cape Town and spent a number of years they went back to Namibia and spent the 90s there. And what were you doing during that time? Um, I moved there back from London my first daughter was born here in London a brilliant repeated mistake. <laughs> and I went back in 1990 just after independence and I wrote, I worked in publishing. I worked with a publisher that did a lot of the new books that came out in the early 90s. Namibia didn't have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but there'd been a brutal civil war there. So I worked with other writers on the African Publishers Network. I taught, I wrote some books. I wrote my first books there, had some more children. And then I got a scholarship and went to New York. With tiny children? With tiny children. I had three tiny children and I would just make them sit under my desk because I was working them for the feminist press as well as doing my, my MA. And the Americans were very impressed because they would just sit there silently. And years later, I said to them, like, why were you so good? I said, you know, I never threatened you or anything. And they said, no, you didn't. But that was worse because we didn't know what you might do. <laughs> Uh, so all of this time you're, you're writing, but you're writing non-fiction. It's articles and working in publishing. When did the fiction 
start for you? The fiction started when I moved back to South Africa in 2001. So I'd been away for quite a long time. From 88, I left and returned to live there in 2002. And I worked then as a journalist. I'd been a student journalist in the 80s. And I was so overwhelmed at the levels of violence in South Africa. So this amazing constitution, the sort of miraculous transformation of South Africa, and then this unbelievably unrestrained violence, which I couldn't work out. So I did a lot of reporting, sort of in-depth stuff, and particularly about violence against women, because it seemed that the civil war that I'd grown up with in the 80s had moved from the street into the home and right into the body. And it's the body, especially women's bodies, and how they are perceived and what it feels like to live in a woman's body or a girl's body that was really fascinating to me. So I found with the journalism I could list the facts. You know, you've got 2,000 words, you're doing a piece, maybe 5,000. You can go fact, 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 fact. But I couldn't get at the complexity of the truth, the long origins of violence, of patriarchy, of apartheid, of a civil war, before that um, colonialism, before that slavery. You know, it sounds far away, but, you know, now I live in England and you have similar undercurrents of a post-colonial world which are perhaps less apparent to people who live with less immediate violence. So that's when I wrote my first series because I thought in 100,000 words which is a novel, 80 to 100,000 words, I could really get to the essence of what it was that drove this violence in the present. The image I always use is if you see water seemingly smooth, you'll see an eddy, and then right below the water are the rocks. And to me, that's what I'm interested in, to kind of delving down to the origin, the history of violence, and then how it kind of plays out in the present. Mm. And those first books, was that the beginning of your Claire Hart series? That was my Claire Hart series. There were five, there are five in that um, series. And I take her through a number of quite harrowing investigations. Some of them paralleled the work that I'd been doing at the time. I was also a patron of rape crisis at that time in South Africa. So I saw very directly two things. The trauma caused and then the unbelievable resilience in people, their determination to go on and learn to love again somehow, learn to reassemble themselves. So you kind of get both. Mm. I got both. Mm. And, of course, it, the first book is, like Clockwork, it, it is about rape. Yes, yes, it was about rape. It was about a series of rapes. You know, I think, you know, post Me Too... In London, after, say, the case of Sarah Everard and a number of other cases, the the sort of dynamics and the kind of limitation of gendered violence on women's lives is, is much more apparent to us. And that's where I was just trying to unpack what, what it was. Mm. You know, journalists are not very complex creatures. We have one question, which is why. <laughs> and it's a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> but beautifully written. I mean, Claire Hart has been translated into lots of languages. Very, very popular series. Yes, very popular series. She's a great heroine. She's kind of like a warrior, really, and, and this real kind of feminist sensibility that I gave her. But this sort of curiosity that she had about and this impulse towards justice. Yeah, it's been translated, I think, I don't know, 
to about 15 languages now and it's in development for television series as well. So hopefully we'll see her and her very handsome sidekick, Ridwan Faisal, on the screens, <laughs> not for not too, too long. And how, how, how far is she? I mean, you talk about the sort of various themes being reflective of what you were going through. But how far is she based on you? Oh, she was a total fantasy. So I was writing those books when I had three small children. I had a husband, I had a washing machine, I had a dog, I had like all the lady paraphernalia. And Claire lives in this pristine flat all by herself. Everything is painted white. She's got a view of the sea. She never cooked. She just like ate takeaway, nothing. She ate nothing, I think. But she had my... Detective, well, she's a private investigator, but she was a very interesting character because she was also a journalist. And I found that the two professions that can go anywhere are cops and journalists. You never get asked why you're in a place. People might not want you, but there's never any question. And it was liberating to write about a woman who could just be there because of her job. And I found that, you know, South Africa is a very stratified society. So she could traverse from the kind of most poverty-stricken squatter camp to a cocktail party at the president's house, which journalists can do. Yes. You know, just with a little bit of a hairbrush, you can go in between the two. So it was a way of moving my eye around South Africa. My true heart in that series is her lover, Ridwan Faisal, because I think I put myself more in him, a kind of instinctive response to things that go wrong, which often gets him into trouble. Um, she's, she's, Claire's much more cerebral. I had trouble with her, you know, because she was kind of uptight sometimes. Well, I mean, it, it comes across that you know this character so well. I think it's wonderful. I just before we move on, I just wanted to know, the, this series came out, I think, between 2006 and 2013. Mm. During that time, there was so much progress particularly with technology. And I wonder how writers deal with that. Oh, the curse of the cell phone and the GPS. It's absolutely ruined crime fiction because the most boring thing on earth is to have like a cop in a lab sit through like a GPS printout of where your phone has been. In one book, in Blood Rose, which is set up in Namibia, to get away from that, I put it in the I mean I'd done some work in Volfus Bay so I was very interested in that little port town it's very isolated it's southern African version of a, a drawing room locked country house murder because there's just this town and then desert and ocean but there really is no cell phone coverage there in the town yes but in the surrounding areas there was none so it I could legitimately use that as a plot device another time in Gallows Hill, it's a cold case. So there, in that one, a 20-year-old skeleton is found in an old slave burial ground. So I had two crime scenes, crime scene of slavery metaphorically and then this other one. So with there, it was not an issue. Mm. But it is a curse. You have to build it in and it's it's very uninteresting. I'm interested in the psychology, the why people do things. So I suppose I moved closer and closer. My last Claire Hart Water Music really is a psychological novel. It's a kind of unpacking of the nuclear family actually as a cult, which I think they quite often are, despite having formed one again myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I shifted more and more to the psyche, mm. to the why. Mm. 
So then you might know where somebody's driven around, but why he's driven around or she is a different question. Yeah. Well, your new book, I would call it a, a psychological thriller, would you? Absolutely, yes. This is, it's not part of the series, completely standalone. Why move away from Claire Hart and do another one? This is called The Eye of the Beholder. Why, why ditch Claire? <laughs> I absolutely burnt out writing the Claire books, uh, Claire Hart books. I was exhausted by the material that I'd been using. So I decided to do something even worse or more difficult. <laughs> Part of it was I'd written a, a sixth Claire Hart, which I then withdrew. It was an investigation into the production of child pornography. And in that book, which I finished, you know, I finished like a draft that I could have handed in. I found the book to be unethical, even though it was Claire with her sort of feminist justice warrior eyes. She was replicating the gaze of something that is completely taboo and anathema. She had to find the images. She had to look at the images. And I had done an investigative piece about that, actually, which I won an award for in South Africa in the early 2000s about the making of both child pornography and images taken from women without consent. So this was years before there were any laws about revenge porn and that kind of thing. And something stuck with me, this girl who said to me, it never finishes. I saw the images of the assault, which were filmed and were all over the internet then. And she said to me, it never stops. She said, even when I'm sleeping, someone will be watching what happened to me. And I had worked with a lot of rape survivors and for them who could reach some sort of integration with what had happened to them is when they could find a way in therapy where the event, the assault, started to move into the past, where it gave them some more time. And this absolutely stuck with me, this idea of a crime that never, ever stops for the victim. For the perpetrator, it's nothing. For the victim, it's it's a forever thing. So I'd written this book about that. And the gaze, the Claire Hart gaze as the investigative person just replicated the crime. So I pulled the book in that form. But this idea of a forever crime absolutely stayed with me. And I think I'd also... I can't do much with procedurals anymore, exactly from what you say with the, the tech mm. It's not interesting to me. We know how it works. It's not what I'm interested in. There are people who do it brilliantly, but it's not my field. So I waited for a long time to de how to find a form to deal with these forever crimes. You know, parallels will be things like children who have been abused and the, how that plays out in their lives if they replicate the abuse, if they continue to be unable to defend themselves. So it's, it's something I think we're quite familiar with now after Me Too, after the Jimmy Savile stuff. There are these BBC journalists now who've said, you know, there was, you know, these historical crimes. And those investigations have been done well by a number of writers, but I wanted to know what it is when it goes on forever, how mm. it affects the people around a victim who might not even know that she was a victim. And what you've also done, which is so different from your from your series, is you've set this in completely the opposite landscape. This is deep snow. From the very first page, you are shivering with cold. Yes, it starts off with a woman 
fleeing what should be the sanctuary of a warmly lit skiing cabin into the wilderness. It's, it starts off in Canada. It's a landscape that's totally unfamiliar to her. Cora Berger, she's the sort of protagonist of the novel, an artist, a woman, I suppose, of about 50-ish. And she goes out into the snow. So there's, I've just written to my lovely readers in Winnipeg who asked me why I set it in Canada. You know, what was the draw? I have spent quite a bit of time in very cold and snowy places and they totally disorientate me growing up in Namibia, which is desert and semi-desert. But so the, the story is about a woman who's completely disorientated. She's lost all her bearings and she doesn't know whether the inside or the outside is more dangerous of herself or the landscape that she's in. But what I could bring with my having spent a lot of time in very remote parts of the world where there literally are no people, what it feels like to be cast out into an environment like that and sort of navigate it. And she is somewhere where she has no defences. She doesn't know this place. She's lost. She um, needs to escape. So it reflected, I suppose, this interior landscape of mm. hers. And also what she's witnessed to what she's done has given her this kind of bleak feeling. Plus, years ago, I was in a massive blizzard uh, one Christmas in Vermont, which I know is not Canada, it's on the border. But we went to bed one night and then the next morning we woke up and there'd been 12 feet of snow and we were <laughs> snowed in and it was miraculous. And you can't tell where you are and it, it really kind of changes your psyche somehow. Mm. The book does, however, move backwards and forwards to, to Africa. And there's one particular incident which I think we perhaps don't hear enough about now, is, which is that relationship between employee, employer and staff, or as people of that time and, and that place would call it master and servant. Yes, so Cora, Cora Berger, my main character, is she comes from South Africa. My great curse is I can't imagine an English childhood. I mean, I can see it. I've seen the pictures, but... I can't imagine coming from a place which is not for, where your character is not formed in and through violence, yeah. structural violence where, I mean, I think every white Southern African has the moment which I, I use in the book where you suddenly realize on farms and, you know, my grandparents had a farm um, about two hours from Johannesburg where you suddenly realize that the children of the farm workers who you play with, that there's a, a, divi a massive divide between you and them. I mean, it sounds, and I, I don't like these sort of South African memoirs, which was, I had the perfect life in paradise, and then I realized, oh, apartheid. What I've always been interested in is how you become a raced person, a sexed being. The two are absolutely entwined um, and I wrote an essay sometime for an issue of Granter called The Politics of Feeling, in which I explore that experience of my own. But Cora's formation as a person is through this rupture that happens with her and her, her little friend, this boy who is the son of her nanny and the housekeeper. And the the rupture in her the split, it provokes in her father this kind of, you know, because she's a little white girl and she's playing with this little black boy. And the intervention that comes when a child starts to approach puberty and there's all the kind of 
um, sexual controls that come in around race and that sort of white supremacist thing, which is so coming back up to the fore again now at the moment. And it is her formative experience in a way in that what enters her is this terrible shame that she is somehow, which she is, but inadvertently responsible for the assault on this little boy, the beating of this child who's been her friend. And she, it's the thing you have to work out if you're born into a society based on white supremacy, that you are culpable. However liberal your own actions might have been. However, th- that's the formation yeah. of the self in, in what I knew and came to understand through all that other stuff that mm. I was writing and that uh, the, the irretrievable shame and rage that comes in to both of these children. David, her friend, David, as he was called, he, she, loses, she loses him. It's a really, really powerful book. It's beautifully written. It's got huge praise from people like Ian Rankin. He says, as powerful as it is elegant, grips like a vice. And it really does. I picked it up and didn't put it down till I'd finished it. It was just absolutely, I mean, a classic page turner, if you like. But with, as you're describing, all of these areas which just prompt more thought and prompt more investigation. Uh, And one of those, of course, is revenge. Oh, yes. Revenge. It is a revenge thriller. So you have at the centre we have Cora. The story, the novel weaves together the stories of three women. Cora, her daughter Freya, who's about 18, completely caught in the orbit of her mother, born here in London, grown up in England, a completely different person. But of course she lives next to this very gifted, very powerful mother who's has had a series of kind of art exhibitions and things. And that relationship I found very interesting, where you have mother and daughter, an immigrant mother with this child who is English, but she lives alongside the damage in her mother that her mother can't even see always. You know, she doesn't have it in focus. So she's doing an investigation about her mother because she's been behaving strangely. She's been disappearing. She can tell she's really in some kind of psychic crisis. On the other hand is this wonderful character, Angel Lamar, who is a kind of revenge machine. She is determined to kill every man who's ever harmed her. She's So I used, I kind of thought of the story of Lolita with her, and I thought, what would happen? I've always been interested in, in Nabokov's Lolita, the, the relationship between Lolita and her mother, who dies in a car accident. Uh, so it, it is a way, in a way, a book about mothers, both absent and present, and daughters. Angel is about the same age, so she is after um, this this list of men who've. I won't do a plot spoiler, but yeah, she's got a hit list, she, and she they deserve to be on that hit list, and she is after revenge, but she is a character who I've met in many forms before of a loving, open person capable of attachment who has been damaged. So she forms this carapace. She comes out of reform school, you know, juvenile prison, and she tracks these, she's tracking people. And she suspects that Claire might be somehow involved in the in some of the things that happened to her. So it's it's a way of looking at these two women because uh, Cora has this 
damage she's older Angel has it now, but she has a kind of Cora's turned it in on herself into all sorts of harmful thing. Angel has set it outwards, and she was the most wonderful character to write because she's so determined. But also that this capacity, and why also why I've set it in, it's very much set in nature. She has a kind of rapport with the wild, with animals, with small children. The, the kind of she works with wolves. She works with wolves. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I did have in the company of wolves. You know, Angela Carter was there in my mind. But she is on a revenge mission. But she also is trying to remember who her mother was. She has this profound doubt. Like The question is, what happens when a mother doesn't protect her daughter or fails to, which is always, I'm the mother of three daughters, and you think, what happens if we fail them? Mm. And as a generation, I sometimes fear, have we failed them? I look at Roe v. Wade and I think, yes, we failed them. You know, the overturning of that. So it's about, and it's also, I was interested, women are so conditioned to be kind in the last instance to men I mean I've done this to men who've really caused great harm when they look at you with big eyes you still help them again and my question was what would happen if they just don't if they stick with the fury and don't get seduced by becoming and become compassionate what happens good things That's what we find out in this wonderful, wonderful book. Margie, just before we go, I wanted to have a quick word about uh, Penn because uh, you're still involved with the South African branch of Penn and, of course, you were on the board of Penn International Mm. for a long time. Just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I I worked with Penn in South Africa because from 2010 when, you know, because after 94, the new constitution, freedom of speech is, is really protected constitutionally. And Penn, of course, is the Writers' Human Rights Organisation. Yes, so it's a writers' organisation. It's the oldest, I think, NGO in the the world. It had its 100th year anniversary last year. In 2010, Jacob Zuma, who was then president, brought in the secrecy bill, which would have, could have, it was we and other organisations managed to stop it, get journalists or writers up to 25 years in prison for publishing or writing about corruption or classified information. But I think perhaps for for the thing I'm most proud of perhaps is being one of the drafters of the Penn International Women's Manifesto, which if your listeners are interested, they will find, which was passed by Penn International with a lot of work with Penn South Africa, looking at what it is that stops women's free expression. I think we start with that Often for women, the first barrier is the doors of her own home, whether she's with her father or her husband or in patriarchal family. And I've been very concerned. So it's, it's obvious if, if you have a bad government who detains a journalist who wrote a story about corruption, we know what's going on. But I think for women, very often, uh, women, non-binary people, trans, people who live on try to make lives for ourselves on the borders of this kind of very certain patriarchal masculinity. How to express yourself is complex. We don't have the language. In part, this book was trying to find a language for rage and a language for love. But I was interested in how we protect women's free speech and giving them the space to think, to write about things that usually shame silences us. Mm or fear of harming those on whom we depend, perhaps. 
It's all there in this book, isn't it? I mean, this book really seems to me to be a, a culmination of a lifetime's work and thought about all of these issues. It comes together beautifully in this psychological thriller. Margie, thank you so much. The Eye of the Beholder by Margie Orford is published by Canongate and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>